If you have not already, would you uh, open your Bibles to Titus chapter 2? Titus chapter 2, if you are using one of those Blue Church Bibles, in that Bible you can turn to page 998, that'll bring you to the section we're in. When we, this is obviously, uh, if you've looked at your bulletin, you'll see this is part two, maybe you missed part one, but when we looked at these verses, one through ten, which is what we'll be looking at again today of Titus two, I spent, and I did that a couple Sundays ago, I spent the majority of the time simply drawing your attention to and talking about a very important concern of the Apostle Paul that is implicit and explicit in this section, verses 1 through 10, a concern, I would add, that, that all Christians should care about, that they should have. And that concern, beloved, is that Christian congregations, which we are one, local churches, would display for all to see the real beauty, power, and hope of being Christian, of being a true child of God, of adhering to the gospel, of being a disciple, a follower, a learner of our Lord Jesus Christ. But how does the Christian display to the world the beauty and power of being Christian? Beloved, it is through transformed lives, through lives beautified or made beautiful or attractive by our glorious saving and sanctifying God. Or, to say it another way, it is through the good conduct and character that grows out of truly believing and continually trusting in the truths of the gospel. The very gospel that has saved us and has set us free from the tyranny of sin, that we might now live for our Lord Jesus Christ and become, over time, more and more like Him. And, and these are part of the instruments or tools that we can use to do that very thing. But why should Christians be about the business of pursuing beautified lives? Or as Paul puts it in Titus chapter 2, verse 12, the section that follows this one, he calls it upright and godly lives in the present age. Well, beloved, in part, it is so that the gospel might not be discredited or disgraced 
or somehow gain a bad reputation with others because of the unattractive or ungodly way that we might be conducting ourselves or living our lives in this world. But instead, it should be proven, that gospel, or shown by our good conduct and character to be what it is, commendable and worthy of praise, and consequently be one of the means by which God draws the hurting, broken, and hopeless around us to our glorious Savior. Do you understand where I'm going with that? Do you get that? Does that make sense to you? That the gospel beautifies and transforms our lives. That's what we are to be devoted to and dedicated to and concerned about so that those whose lives are broken and they are confused and they're wondering where the answer is will see it on display in the lives of those who are believing and trusting in the gospel and pursuing Christ with all of their heart, mind, and soul. And Paul's deepest desire and motivation, if you read, and Paul's the one who wrote this letter and a good portion of the New Testament, Paul's deepest desire and motivation is that sinners would come to the Lord. And so he directs his instruction to Titus that he would direct that instruction to the local congregations on the island of Crete that they might live in such a way that it would draw broken people to Christ, to the gospel, that it would have a good reputation in the community as something that is powerful and life-changing. And they would recognize it as something that they need. So let's read the text, and as we do, pay special attention, and we did basically that last time, to the end of verse 5, verse 8, and verse 10. Okay, That's where we see this explicitly stated, this concern of Paul's and implied. So in contrast to those who professed to know God but denied him by their works and were unfit for any good work, which is what Paul says at the end of chapter 1, he now, in contrast to that, speaks to Titus and says this beginning in verse 1. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. That means discredited. Six, likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects, now speaking to Timothy, to be a model, I'm sorry, Titus, of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. Why? So that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Nine, 
Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. Why? So that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Verse 10, as I told you last time in another translation, says, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive, attractive. Another way you could put it is so that in everything we may show the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of the gospel. One writer commenting on this section said this, the entire chapter deals with the evangelistic impact of a spiritually healthy congregation and gives direct practical instruction about how believers are to live for the purpose of showing sinners the power and joy of salvation, of salvation. He also adds this, they were to live lives, Christians, those on Crete and us as well as Christians, that properly reflected their salvation from sin and were a worthy affirmation of the transforming power of their Savior. We are to be that light in a dark world, in a confused world, in a hurting world, in a world looking for answers. We're to be that answer demonstrating it through our character and our conduct that's attached to our belief in and trust in the gospel. There's a a presupposition, if you will, uh, something assumed as you read this text that I just want to draw your attention to quickly. Uh, The presupposition is this, that your religion will impact your daily conduct. (laughs) That's there because if it's not there, then verse 5 makes no sense. Look look back at it. I said at the end of verse 5. Right? The younger women are to be instructed to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands. Why? That the word of God may not be reviled or discredited. Why in the world would the word of God be reviled or discredited if they were not those things? You ever thought about that? Because their life is to flow out of their faith. So if their life is none of those things, and those and not being any of those things would be ugly and unattractive and disastrous then they would attribute it to what they believe and who they're following, which is, they're saying, Jesus Christ, the God of gods. That's the presupposition. So that made total sense back then. For some, from some reason, there's a disconnect now. But within Judaism, if you understood Judaism, there wasn't a piece of their life impacted by their faith, by their religion. Their entire life. Their entire life, from sunup to sundown. 
And every aspect of their life was regulated and directed and guided by their faith, by their religion, if you will. I would say even the same of paganism. You, you, didn't, you didn't have someone who was a pagan who was like, yeah, you know, paganism is just something I do on Sunday. You know, or once a month, you know, when I'm feeling a little, you know, like I need something. Paganism infiltrated their entire life. It impacted their, their gods, had a say in how they lived. That's the presupposition. It wasn't an isolated part of their life. Unfortunately, somewhere along the way, we, Christianity, Christians have in some realm, circles, they allow it to be, or they think it to be an isolated, a a piece of their life instead of their life. You know? We sing songs, Christ is all, he's everything. Is he? Well, he is, but is he really in your life? Is he Lord of your life? Is he in control? Are you looking to him? Is he impacting every area of your life? He should be. He should be. That's what he demands. But that's not always the case. And as I said before, I said last time, one of the issues of our day, if you will, and I I won't spend a lot of time on this, but one of the issues that causes this problem is just this idea of that and I refer to it as lordship salvation, but it's the idea that he doesn't have to be lord of your life. He can just be your savior. And so I keep him in his box over here. He's savior. That covers me when I pass from this life into the next. I'll enter into heaven. There you go. You stay there. And occasionally I might come over and open the door and let you out when I'm feeling guilty about my sin and I'll find their forgiveness. And I might even occasionally ask you for help in some situation that I find myself unable to take care of my own matters. But that is not the Jesus of the Bible. He is Lord. He is a supreme being to whom all allegiance, obedience, and worship is due. And he doesn't want a piece of your life He wants it all, and you owe it to him. He bought you if you are his and have given your life to him. He bought you. He purchased you that you would be his and give yourself to him fully without reserve. Which means all of you. You know what I mean? All of you. So... The idea that he can be Savior but not Lord, that's bad thinking, bad teaching. He is Lord. We need to see him rightly. We need to receive him rightly. We need to let him be who he is and treat him as he is. But I I also think there's just another pushback, the reason that there would be a disconnect between, hey, how I live my life and my faith, there might be a disconnect, is and this is, again, bad doctrine, but it would be a pushback against salvation by works. Let me explain. Are we saved by our works? No. That's right. That is correct. We are not saved by our works. We cannot work our way into heaven. 
uh, the good deeds we might do could never make us right before God. We are guilty and condemned before him. We are in need of a savior. Nothing we can do. We can't earn our way into heaven. We can't even pay Christ back. We can't, we can't do it. We can't make up the debt. Only Christ can, right? So we push that hard, and we should. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and only one, Christ alone, right? Yes, yes, and yes, and amen. But maybe such a strong emphasis, and it's a good one, such a strong emphasis has maybe created a de-emphasis on the facts, fact that works are to be a part of the saved person's life. You are saved by grace and not by works? For sure, yes. But the grace that saves, saves us unto good works. Unto good works. We must never forget or ignore that. He didn't save you just to bail you out of eternal damnation. He saved you that you would be his. That you would glorify him and that you would make him known to the world. Through changed and transformed life and through the proclamation of the gospel. Both backing each other up. Both in agreement with one another. You know, I, I see like even just in our culture, right, I see, I see this maybe disconnect with works that, you know, you know I, in other words, I'm saved, but, you know, and I'm saved apart from my works. Yes, you are, but you're saved unto good works, right? I see the disconnect in things like this. You ever seen this bumper sticker? Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. Now, now wait. Don't get mad at me in case you have that bumper sticker. I, I get that. I think I get what that sticker's after, right? I think I do. The general thought is like, you know, hey, chill a little bit. I'm not saying I'm a perfect person, okay? I'm not saying I'm a, because nobody is, right? I just want you to know that I'm just forgiven. So they want to emphasize the forgiveness aspect. I get that. I get that. Um, But here's what Paul says. He says things like this. I just don't think Paul would ever have that bumper sticker in the back of his car. Or a camel. Donkey. He says things like this in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Hmm, you ever seen that bumper sticker on someone's car? Have you? I wonder why. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. I mean, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. How about we aren't perfect, but I'm not the man I used to be, and I'm being transformed and changed, and let me tell you about the fantastic change that God has made in my life and is making. How about that? Not just the aspect, yes, you're forgiven, but it, there's more to salvation than just being forgiven. That is the foundation of it, but it establishes your relationship with God that's supposed to be a trans, 
transformative, changing relationship. How about what he says in Philippians 3.17, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. That's what Paul says. And when he says, brothers, he's speaking to the entire church. Join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. And I think about Ephesians 2.8, and that's where we, we drive home by grace, by grace, by grace. Yes, absolutely. So 2A, Ephesians 2A, for by grace you are saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. Indeed, 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 it is the gift of God, for sure, for sure, for sure. It is not from works, absolutely, and amen, so that no one can boast. Agreed. Verse 10. For we are his workmanship, having been created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand so we may ignore them. Occasionally do them. Is that what you said? Okay, well, either, yeah. Yeah, whatever, right? Do them, right? Do them. He saved you for this. And even when verse 10 is considered with verse 8 and 9, context, right? Even when it's considered, it is sometimes mistakenly thought to be something more impressive than the mundane or day-to-day living. What am I talking about? Good works, like I'm going to maybe go to Africa, and that's where I'll do the good work, preaching the gospel, and that is a good work. But is Is that primarily what Paul is thinking about, good works? I mean, just is that the focus? Is it narrow like that? Like, I'm going to do something great and spectacular. He has good works prepared for me. Beloved, it it includes that, but it's, it's so much broader. Listen, good works are you being a godly husband. Oh, well, that's a little more personal and stuff. That means that's day-to-day stuff, yeah. Good works are you being a godly wife, a godly friend, a godly neighbor, a godly employee, a godly citizen, a godly sibling. You get it? Good works are you being the person that God has called, saved, instructed, and empowered you to be in Christ. Those are the good works. The mundane, the day-to-day, the grind, Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday, it is there you are to put on display through the power of Christ and the Holy Spirit that resides in you good works that God has prepared for you beforehand. It is there. One writer commenting on this passage says, the Christian's duty and usefulness lie exactly in, not outside of, the circumstances under which his life is lived. You don't need to go find different circumstances to put on display good works. You're to put them on display in your home, in your family, in the car, on the way to church. And yes, in traffic. Thank you, brother. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. 
Beloved, if we care about the reputation of the gospel, if, if we care about what God cares about, and I sure hope we do, and if we don't, something's wrong, something's wrong, then we will care about our conduct, our character, and we will strive, we will strive. That means, I, let me say, strive and struggle. It means you know, you just don't set out and it's, ah, easy road, right? No problem. This is so, no, it's not. But we're striving, we're struggling, we're fighting. We will fight the good fight by the means God has given us to display to this lost world the true beauty and power of the gospel. We will do that. We will do that. We we won't look the other way when the pastor gets up there. All I got to do is just, you know, He's only going to say this for a couple of minutes, so I'll just not hear him for a couple of minutes, and then we'll get to the good stuff. You know, he'll be in the Bible. This is the good stuff. I started with the good stuff, and I'm continuing in the good stuff. You won't just say, ah, you know, I mean, do I really need that? Yes, you do need it. I need it. You need it. You, you won't look the other way. You'll take advantages of these kind of things that the church offers to you for your good and for the glory of God and for the advancement of the gospel according to the word of God. Change lives. Beautified lives by the work of God in our lives. And he uses these types of means, Bible studies and such. So let's look at verse one. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Sound, sound doctrine, healthy. We've dealt with this word before. Healthy doctrine. Another translation of the Bible says, but you must say the things that are consistent with sound teaching, healthy teaching. Remember, he's getting ready to introduce their behavior. So this is behavior that is consistent with sound teaching. Another translation of the Bible puts it this way, but as for you, communicate the behavior that goes with sound teaching. Right? So they insert the word behavior. It's not there, but it's implied. It's implied because what follows is the behavior that Paul is calling for in this chapter. Paul is saying, Titus, listen, unlike the unhealthy or erroneous teaching of the false teachers that he's just addressed in chapter 1 that resulted in them being unfit for any good work, chapter 1, verse 16, Titus, you, you instruct them, the church, in the behavior that goes with sound or healthy doctrine. That is to say, communicate the conduct or behavior or kind of living that reflects or is in agreement with the true teaching of the gospel, of the gospel. One writer commenting on the passage says this, sound or healthy teaching is teaching that is in accord with the message of the Savior. This message gives eternal life but it is also designed to produce behavior that corresponds to the Savior's purpose for coming into the world as evidenced in his person, life, and work on the cross. He came to die for the penalty of sin and to give eternal life as a free gift, but he also came to overcome Satan's rule and sin's reign in the lives of those who put their trust in him. Does your life say that? Does your conduct, does your behavior say 
that Satan's rule and sin's reign has been broken by the power of the gospel in my life? Or does it just say, hey, when I die, I'm going to heaven? Paul then goes on to point out the conduct that goes with sound teaching or doctrine and does that by addressing various groups within the church, older men, older women, young women, young men, and he concludes with bond servants, or the best parallel we have in our context would be employees. But basically, he addresses every age, primarily the ages, the genders, every gender, because there's just two, and a particular social status that was prevalent in the church, that of bond servant. So, he begins with Titus verse 2, older men. And there he says, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older men. There's, one writer points out, there's no indication about what specific age a man must attain before he's considered an older man, but in the context at least, as Paul is using the term and the phrase, it appears that this would be a man... Uh, that has, is old enough to have raised a family and seen their children begin families of their own. I only say that because, or I say that because as he also speaks to older women, the older women are to train the young women, the young women appear to have children at home and are raising children, and so in parallel, these are probably just older men that have already gone through the process of raising a family. But, Regardless, what is said about the older man would certainly be fitting for every Christian, right? I mean, so it's not like, hey, I'm not an older man, so I guess these things aren't for me. So like when we were talking about the elder qualifications, and I said these are essential qualifications for those who would be elders in the church, I was, did my best to point out to you, but clearly these, this is really Christ-likeness, this is godliness, this is a righteous life on display, this would be the expectation for every Christian, but for those who would be elders in the church, they must have these character qualities seen in their life. They must be evident in their life, right? So you don't say, well, I'm not an elder, so I don't have to be any of those things. No. You should be striving for what an elder has to be. In the same sense, what the older man should be taught to be and display, put on display, and have of these qualifications, not qualifications, if you will, but character traits and his conduct, every person should be striving to be. But why break it up? Why not just say, hey, tell the church to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness? Why didn't he just say, tell them all? Tell them all to conduct themselves this way. Well, I think it's because there is a Um, a natural process by which we grow in our instruction and learn. It's a mentoring role. And generally speaking, uh, the younger look to the older, right? Generally speaking, the younger look to the older to learn the way in which they are to conduct themselves, to carry themselves, to live. And so he's going to address both groups, older men. He's going to address younger men. The younger men will be looking to the older men, to determine how they are to live, just as the younger women are to, will be looking to the older women to see how they are to live 
in line with their faith and the gospel. So there's a mentoring relationship within the church. Beyond that, the older men would be the natural leaders of the community. So I think he addresses them first. As we look to those who are going to be leading in our community, then we should see these characteristics and this conduct in them so then we, could, we can model it as well. So it's not that... It's not like they only have to be this. No, they are to be this because of their leadership role, because of their mentoring role to the younger men, so that the whole body will grow up into that as they see it on display and being modeled before them. One writer says, these are those who should naturally model Christian truth to the younger men, but being a good example will depend on their moral character. And another man points out that the fact that Paul lists these qualities shows that they are not automatically developed with age. Something else. Just because someone's older and has lived a long time does not mean they are sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Certainly not. They must grow in these things, and because of their position in life, they should be thinking about their responsibility to be a mentor to others that are looking up to them, older men, so that they too can learn what it looks like to really be this. So the first quality, sober-minded. The term rendered sober-minded, it's from a Greek word group that literally means soberness in contrast to drunkenness. So if you had the New King James, if you were using that Bible, it actually translates it just sober. Sober. So is that what Paul is saying? Tell the older man not to be drunk. It is not. The adjective that's being used here, as one writer points out, it carries the root idea of being free from intoxication or not drunk. But in the New Testament, it is used metaphorically. So it's not literally talking about drunkenness, but it's used metaphorically here of someone who is moderate, moderate, or temperate, temperate. A temperate person, a temperate person avoids extravagance, extravagance. Uh, What is extravagance? Well, that's lack of restraint in using a resource, lack of restraint. So they demonstrate restraint in their use of their resources. And a temperate person avoids overindulgence, overindulgence, having too much of something enjoyable. Okay? So just be thinking, let your mind start to wander a little bit as you think about how these things might apply to specific situations. But because uh, temperate would be a better translation, that is, I think, of the Greek word that's there as opposed to sober-minded. But it's basically a a mindset of soberness or temperance or moderation. Some other translations just use the word temperate. I think that's better. So the New American Standard Bible says temperate. The NIV 84 says temperate. The NET says temperate. And again, if I were to define temperate, I would define it this way, showing moderation or self-restraint. What would be the uh, opposite of being temperate? It would be extreme. Extreme. So think of it this way, like when you think about different climates that exist in our country, there are some that have extreme climates, right? Extreme. There are others that have temperate climates, okay? You see the difference? 
temperate climate, so a temperate Christian. Another translation, which I don't think is super helpful, but trying to get at the, the, the real meaning of that Greek word translates it, they must not go too far. <laughs> go too far where? It just, they must, but it's in this sense. They're restrained. They're restrained. They are not excessive. They are moderate. They show moderation. One writer says they are free from all forms of excess or life-dominating patterns through the control of the Spirit. They are, another way to put it, well-balanced. Strzok, who comments on this because it's also a qualification for elders, says temperate denotes self-control, balanced judgment, and freedom from debilitating excesses. Beloved, just think about you know, where this shows up in a, in a man's life or anybody's life for that matter. One who is given to, to no restraint. They're not, they don't show moderation. They are overindulgent. Think about how that shows up in finances. Think about how that shows up in um, things that are not evil but that are free for us to enjoy, but think about how it shows up in food. You're eating. Someone who does not show restraint, they're not moderate. Uh, Think about how it shows up in maybe your desire for vacationing or, or something of that nature, where your desire to have fun. Is there anything wrong with having fun? But the man who is not temperate or woman who's not temperate in having fun will at some point stop having fun because they will not have a balanced life and so they will not do the other things that are necessary to do in order for them to have a life where they can have fun. I'm using very broad and general examples, but a life that is not qualified or characterized as being temperate is generally, generally a messed up life. If it's not now, it will be. It's a disaster. Someone who cannot show restraint, who is not moderate. They are extreme. And if you just think about even our culture, you know, do it and do it hard, you know, like, like to the extreme, like extreme sports. You know, it's like we're, we're given to these, these extreme, but that's, that's not the kind of living that we are to, to live as a rule of thumb, as a rule of thumb. One writer says, the temperate person uses his time, his money, and his energy carefully and selectively. Yeah, I just think about even our, our hobbies. With people who are, they're not, they have no moderation in their hobbies, so it begins to consume them or own them, where they give all of themselves to it. Okay? And that, with it, has negative consequences in their life, because they have to neglect something as they pursue this other thing. No moderation. So certainly you would see it with alcohol. One who is not moderate with alcohol becomes drunk. And drunkenness leads to all kinds of chaos in one's life. But it happens in every other area of life as well. I think that with all of these things, as we look at them, I think we are transformed by the gospel to become temperate people. 
In other words, we're not given to extremes because we find our contentment, our true happiness, our, we're finding it, we find it and are finding it, our true peace, our true satisfaction fully in our relationship with Christ, with Him, in knowing Him and loving Him and Him loving us and all the truths that surround that, we are finding it in Him. So I am not a man that is now, it, it has a way of resolving that issue in my life where I'm not a man, I don't need to be a man of extremes. I'm not chasing after something. I am content already. I also see the wisdom in living a life that is temperate so I don't get caught up in the possible negative consequences of being an extreme man or giving myself to overindulgence, even in something that I'm free to have. Even sleep. You just keep going down the list. A moderate man, a temperate man, sleeps, but he does not sleep because he knows he needs sleep, but he doesn't sleep for hours on end because that's overindulgence. And because God has called him to things, to do things and to responsibilities, he knows that he needs to control his sleeping so that he can be awake and do the things that God has called him to do. So he is moderate even in that. But again, generally, when people, we talk about this, people just think, oh, moderation, you know, and immediately you might think about alcohol. Well, certainly he should be, he either doesn't use it at all, or if he does, he's moderate in it. And then, there's, of course, there's some things that you should not even participate in, even in moderation, right? Sin. So that doesn't, it doesn't scoop over to sin, like, well, he's tempered in sin, he doesn't overindulge, he just plays with it a little bit. No, there are certain things that you should have no, you should not partake in at all. But we're talking about the things that you're free to partake in, but you're not given to excess. I'm sure you can think of folks who are given to excess in their life, right? It, it, it just, think it through, guys, think it through, and let it, let it sit with you personally and ask God to reveal to you, are you given to excess in any area of your life? Are you given to excess in any area of your life? Or extravagance? Or overindulgence? I mean, see, it's like one thing, it's one thing like for a lady to like shoes and to want some shoes. But if she has to have every shoe, it's one thing for a man to give himself to physical fitness. But if it consumes all of his time, time that should be spent doing other more important things, then he is given to excess. He's not a moderate. He doesn't have moderation in this area. All right, I I will partake of this. I have time for this, but in moderation. You see what I'm saying? It's funny because of all the things that people can give, be excessive about, it's generally not like church life. (laughs) Yeah, like he's extreme. I mean, that, it, you, there are some, but even in that, even in that, there. If you were, I would say to you, I would counsel you. If you, if you weren't caring for your family, and you were so involved in every church ministry to the degree that you were forsaking other responsibilities, then something's wrong. Something's wrong. And often, folks, often we give ourselves these things because they they give us something back that we're looking for. And that's why I say the gospel is so powerful and beautiful 
when it's being trusted in and, and processed in the believer's life. Because that thing you're looking for will never be found in those excesses or overindulgences. But it can be found in Christ. He gives it to you fully, completely, and freely. Look to him. You'll find it. Value, contentment, peace, satisfaction, joy. You'll find it in full. And it's perfect and beautiful. And that frees you then to be a person of moderation in these other things. And people see it, or hopefully they will see it. And while they're living in their excesses and suffering because of it, they see a man of moderation, a temperate man, a temperate woman, carrying out their life, not getting caught up in the ever-ending advertisement to engage in the excesses of this life, to overindulge. And they will see the beauty in that. Even if they don't fully grasp it, they'll see the beauty in it. They'll see the the balance, the stability in that kind of life. And that will be the case as we look at all of these, which we'll pick up again next week. Father in heaven, I pray that you would continue to do a work uh, in our lives, in your church. Beautify us, Father. We, We are thankful for the work that you have already done in our individual lives. Many of us would be happy to, to, and could rightly say and confess that we are so thankful we are not the men or women we used to be. You are, you are doing a work in us. But Father, for those who are not even thinking about that or considering such things, I pray that you would use this text, these sermons, these messages to bring conviction that this is exactly what you've called us for. We are indeed saved by your grace. We, we contribute nothing to our salvation, and, and, and we know that, and we believe that with all of our hearts. We can't earn it. We can't pay you back. We cannot. We rest in Christ, in him alone, in his righteousness. But this one who saved us, saved us that we might be like him, that we might live out this new life. We have new life in Christ. It is to look different And this different is not ugly, it is beautiful. It is beautiful and attractive to a world that is lost in the darkness and does not know where they're going. And so they pursue their ends and they have no hope and they bump up against a wall and they're breaking themselves. Father, may we be the ones who can guide them and show them and demonstrate to them there is another way. There is another way. They do not have to continue down a road of destruction. But they can find real life in Christ. Real beauty. Real hope. Real peace. Real joy. If they will but bow their knee to Him. Turn to Him in repentance and faith. Trust in Him. Call out to Him to be saved. He will save them and He will begin to change them and He will empower them that they might be transformed and become the people God wants them to be. But Father, help us put that on display. Help help us, Father, realize our, our lives need to not be contradictions to the gospel we're preaching. But they're to affirm it. That's what you've called us to. And that affirmation looks like this. A turning away from sin. A turning away from sin. A turning away from sin. And a turning towards righteousness. Towards good conduct. Towards commendable character. 
all a work of your grace for sure, all a process that you're working out in us, but we must, we must cooperate with that. We must give ourselves to it. That's what you've called us to, Father. Not to sit back and do nothing, but to pursue it with a vengeance, to pursue lives of holiness for our good, for your glory, but also, Lord, for the evangelistic impact that it can have on those that are so lost and hurting around us. They don't know where to look. Father, may they be able to look to us and see, wait, that's different. That's different. And be drawn to the very gospel that's empowering our lives and changing it for your glory. We pray all this in Christ's name.